me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 40 of Metallicast, the Metallica podcast. I am your host and fellow Metallica fan. My name is Brandon. On this episode, I am joined by John Cornerens. If you do not recognize that name, well, to be honest with you, you should as a Metallica fan. But I do not blame you for not knowing because he is sort of an unsung hero in the history of Metallica. And the good news is by the end of this episode... You'll be very familiar with him and his role in making Metallica the band that we love today. Because a very, very strong argument can be made that Metallica, as we know them at least, would not exist without this man. And on top of that, he has so many great first-hand stories about the early days of Metallica. So I'm going to keep this introduction really brief. I'm going to let John do most of the talk of this episode because he is such a good storyteller with so many amazing stories to tell. I promise you this is a must listen as a Metallica fan and you will not be disappointed. Here is my interview with John Cornerens about the early days of Metallica. My guest today goes way back with Metallica to their beginning years as a friend of the band. He was instrumental in helping out Metallica in the early days. Lars Ulrich himself is on record as saying there would be no Metallica in large part because of this guest. Please welcome to Metallica's John Corn... I don't want to put your name here. John Cornarens. How are you, John? Great. You said it perfect. John Cornarens. Thank you. (laughs) It, it's always a, a bad start when you uh, mispronounce the guest name, you know? <laughs> oh, it's, this has been going on since I was in kindergarten. No worries. <laughs> well, my name, my, my last name is also very uh, hard to pronounce. Yeah. It's Obercreaser. So it's just, you know, it's not, it's not exactly a name that rolls off the tongue, you know? <laughs> no, only, only if you're in a beer garden in, in Munich, then maybe it would roll off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I, I'm so excited to talk to you and hear some of uh, your stories and some of your background uh, from the early days of the band. Um, I'm curious, obviously, before you met Lars or anybody, you were already a metal fan. I'm curious when you first got into metal and who were some of your favorites growing up? Um, I, I discovered heavy, heavy rock like in like 1969. I think it was the Kinks. And I just gravitated towards kind of aggressive guitar music. So by 1970, it was Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, Deep Purple. But I always, I always wanted to be different and not always right. just follow along with what everybody else liked. So I used to go to record stores and just look through the record bins. And I, I, moved, I was born and raised in L.A., lived for one year in Chicago and seven months in Dallas. So basically it was L.A., and, and I want to say Studio City, California. So I'd get on my bike and I'd ride down Ventura Boulevard and go to record stores. And, and one day, I was in a record store. And I'm also a big World War II, World War One aviation fan. So I'm going through the records, and I see this album cover with a bunch of dudes in leather in front of an ME-262 German jet. It's like, holy shit. And then I'm looking on the back, you know, 
And, and I'd always, I would always want to get a record that didn't have horns and preferably didn't have keyboards. It had to have guys playing guitars. And so when I saw this one guy named Eric Bloom who played a stun guitar, I thought, what is a stun guitar? It sounds so heavy. Anyhow, so I bought Blue Oyster Cult Secret Treaty awesome. you know, because of the airplane right. and a stun guitar, right? So, <laughs> so I became uh, a Blue Oyster Cult fan, and I worked my way back to the first two albums. Yeah. And then somewhere in there, I, I, I ordered the Blue Oyster Cold T-shirt, and on the back it had that mythical symbol on the T-shirt. Right. So I'd walk around junior high, and people thought I was in a cult or something. It was just kind of <laughs> like, <laughs> well, who's this dude? What the hell is that? <laughs> so that was Blue Oyster Cold. Then same record store, I discovered a band called Rush. You know, it's just like I love Alec Lightson's yeah. long, greasy hair. So it was just... That was kind of the that was kind of the you know the the, the progression as far as anything heavy and you know, then I got some into some of the ethereal German stuff too. But I guess the the big the big uh, iconic uh, moment was I went to see Blue Oyster Cult. It was my first concert. It was early 1975 at the Shrine Auditorium, and my I think my parents dropped me and my brother and my friend Gus off, and we went there. I didn't know about earplugs or anything so <laughs> lost my hearing for three days but i've never seen a band with that had five guitarists on stage at once and the yeah. drummer comes out and so it was like oh my god awesome and in between in between there was a band called ario speedwagon that opened up and then also the pretty things mm -hmm. and i liked ario speedwagon because i liked the guitar work gary richrath and i liked um, um um what's it called riding out the storm so I, had, I think I had right around there after we got back from visiting my grandma in San Diego when I was deaf for three days, I got my driver's license, I believe right around then, and I started calling around looking for Aria Speedwagon records, and I, I found some eclectic place called Moby Disc in Van Nuys. I love the name Moby Disc. <laughs> and I drive out to Moby, Moby Disc, you know, <laughs> and I'm in there, and they had held, they were holding... Uh, this uh RS feedbacking record for me and i'm in there looking around and i hear this this something they put on some new record i was just in the back and i hear this dive bomb on a, on a trem bar and it just goes into this great guitar work then the second song is a great acoustic intro is sp spanish goes into a heavy rhythm and by the third song which was drifting sun i was i was hooked yeah. i ran back up and said what the hell is this uh, it's a band <laughs> called scorpions from germany it's like nice. oh my god there's some robot with a guy wearing shoes and propellers you know it's like oh my god this is like you know forget forget everything else so yeah i buy that i go home i'm just deep into it and i'm you know and then i'm looking at the, you know the names and stuff and i go back to the record source and somehow i i end up in the back and the the use section and i see shanker only it's michael shanker and i'm thinking well it's got to be they got to be related so i buy phenomenon ufo and it's like holy right. shit and it's like at rock bottom is still my all time favorite song. And so it was Scorpions and it was UFO and it was more European. And then, then it branched into Judas Priest and it was like Euro American. Of course you loved Aerosmith. Of course you had to like, yeah. you know, foreigner in Boston if you wanted to hang out with girls and yeah. of course Fleetwood Mac. So, but it was always, I had this, this, my, you know, my, like a foot and a half into the European vibe. So yeah. Moby Disc, ends up moving down to Ventura Boulevard and Sherman Oaks like in 78. And I go there a lot and they started getting these, these European magazines and stuff. And so I'd start pulling through them. And I remember, I want to say that it was April, May of 79. 
And the latest issue had the cover of Thunderstick, and it said the new face of heavy metal. And it was the new, the new wave of British heavy metal. I was like, holy crap, what is this? You know, and I, 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 you know, I was always grabbing on anything that was heavy, but it was right. Sounds Magazine. And that's like Angel Witch plays with Iron Maiden, plays with Samson. And the, the irony of that show that, that um, Jeff Barton saw was that at that time, <laughs> Angel Witch was a four-piece uh, band with two guitars, and Iron Maiden was a four-piece man with one guitar, so it's kind of, and that'll change <laughs> later on. And Bruce, and Bruce, Bruce was singing in Samson. And it's like, right, wow. Yeah. So that's where I kind of got started. So then I just nice. started, you know, you would read to the magazine, you go and you read the articles, and then, then Metal for Mothers came out, Brute Force came out, and, and, and all these comp albums came out. So, of course, right away I fell in love with Angel Witch, uh, the, the, the Diamond Head, it's, it's electric, you know, Iron Maiden. And so then this was a whole new world for me. It was just, it was like exploding. And so that's how I kind of discovered the new wave of British heavy metal. And I was just like always going to Moby Disc, always hanging out there. Yeah. And I think in Moby Disc, there I picked up a little fanzine magazine. And in the back, there was this, this guy out in Woodland Hills with a 818-345 number selling like bootleg tapes of scorpions, you know, live in 1978 and 77. And, you know, back in the day, in the dark ages, you're starved for anything. Right. And it was like, wow, wow. So um, I, um, I met up with him like in November of uh, 81. I went out to his house. And then he was selling down at the Capitol Records swap meet. And, and he had some cool tapes. And, and in the process, that's Brian Slagle, by the way. That's how I met Brian. Um, awesome. And in that process, then at Moby Disc, we started getting getting you know more more diverse new wave stuff because I was telling my friend Dana there, hey, can you get this or can you get that or get this? Right. And in 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 like December, I walk in and he's holding it saved me the Angel Witch single. It's like holy shit, Angel Witch! It was like yeah. Angel Witch and Gorgon. It's like oh my god, this is just the greatest thing ever. So <laughs> you know, so so I had that, and it was like I was just really getting into the new wave and starving and in the back there's ads for bullet records and i think shade started uh, advertising there's a few other companies but yeah. i remember bullet was the big one and so fast forward to december 22nd 1980 yeah it was 1980 at the country club in Reseda, california and i've been going to a lot of concerts there it's one of my favorite concert places and i i should back up a little bit uh, jumping back, I did see UFO in 76 at the Starwood. I think Priest played the Whiskey in 77, ACDC. So you were you were getting European bands coming in. And then UFO did a double bill with uh, Rush, I think, in 77. I saw UFO in 78 at the Forum. Um, uh, God, I mean, I, I don't remember all the bands that I saw, but I was clubbing it a lot. I would... I lived in Studio City, so I could just drive over Laurel Canyon and do the clubs on Friday night, That's and then awesome. and then Saturday night go to the discos, looking you know looking to meet girls and stuff. Yeah. So either <laughs> you know or, or you know either either or. So anyhow, so the Metallica connection, the pre-Metallica connection, December twenty second, nineteen eighty, I go to see Michael Schenker Group, first first show in L.A. at the Country Club, and I took my sister, and. I insisted that we were the first in line because I wanted to be in the very front because the country club had seating and tables kind of in the back, halfway back, and then they had a pit in the front. Right. And I wanted to be right in front of Michael. So my sister and I were like the first ones, ran right in. I got right up front. I was stage left and was just right up against the stage. 
right there. And I watched the whole show and was just, you know, it was just an amazing an event. And imagine. yeah, yeah, but it's just because Michael Schenker, you know, his first right. solo and just being right right up underneath him, I literally I could touch his pedal board. So, yeah. so of course I got I was getting my sister bailed because she was getting pushed around, and I I stayed up there uh, a whole show, and I've got a I've got a side story for that in a moment, but I'll I'll, I'll continue. <laughs> so, and I just found this out about two years ago, which was amazing. Three years ago, <laughs> um, um, so I afterwards go outside. And I'm just standing out in the parking lot in the back of my sister, just kind of cooling off and relaxing and taking it all in. Had my T-shirt under my hand, which I still have. I can't, I can't fit in it anymore. But, oh, uh, and I, and I'm, and I'm on. I'm sitting on, I'm just standing on one of these little concrete things, you know, for the parking spots. I'm just looking at people. It's about, there's probably still about 50, 70 people just kind of hanging out in the back of the parking lot. And I, and I'm looking and way in the back, I see, I see this little guy with long hair. And he's got a white shirt on, and he's kind of looking at the ground. And I'm looking. That's kind of I don't know why I was watching him, but he looked by himself. He just looked kind of lonely yeah. by himself. Yeah. And he and he and he kind of turns clockwise, and I and I said, "Holy what?" I said, "Holy shit! Is that a <laughs> is that a Saxon S? Because Saxon had a very distinct S with a little blade that came up, yeah, right? Right. The sword. I was like, I said, Diane. I said. I gotta go talk to this guy. He's got a fucking Saxon T-shirt on. There's nobody in LA that knows about Saxon. And I'm the only one. Yeah. You know, I had wheels of steel or whatever. There's nobody yeah. in LA. Nobody knows this stuff. <laughs> so I hadn't seen him. I hadn't seen him at the show. So I go right up to him. I go right up to him, and and I said, "Hey, you like Saxon?" He goes, "You know who Saxon is?" That's exactly the first words I ever said to Lars Ulrich. Hey, you Amazing. like Saxon? Well, of course he likes Saxon. He has a T-shirt on. Either yeah. that or he just bought the shirt and he didn't know what he was wearing. So that's why I said, hey, you like Saxon. And right. he turns around and his eyes get big. He goes, you know who Saxon is? I said, yeah, you know, wheels of steel, you know, uh, you know, whatever, denim and leather. He goes, how do you know that? I said, shit, I, I, I love Saxon. I love Iron Maiden. You know Iron Maiden? You know, so yeah. we started trading names. And then, then I said, yeah, I just got the new Angel Witch single. And his eyes, his eyes popped out of his head. He turned white. <laughs> You've got the That's new Angel How did you get the new Angel Witch single? He's like, how is it I'm talking to some guy who even knows who Angel Witch is, let alone have their new single? And so, <laughs> so it was instant, instant Beavis and Butthead. That's awesome. And then and we ended up talking about Bow Wow, the Japanese band. And, and we just, it was instant connection. And then he, he told me he just moved from, you know, Copenhagen six months ago yeah. and living in Newport Beach. And I said, man, that's a hell of a drive. He goes, yeah, I have to, get, I have to you know, I had to take my mom's car. He, he drove the ugliest <laughs> car in the world, a brown Pacer. I mean, it was a brown AMC Pacer. It was unbelievable. I mean, you know, not his fault, but anyhow. Right, yeah. And, and so we exchanged numbers. And I, I want to say it was about the, it's probably the day after Christmas because I remember the Christmas tree was up. Lars came up from Newport Beach to Studio City. And we just beavis and butthead, butthead,ed <laughs> you know. He went through all my records. Yeah. You know, he brought a few up to his and tapes. I mean, he was, you know, he usually when he'd come up, he because he'd get up late, so he'd come up in the afternoon. But he usually stayed up two or three in the morning. So anyhow, sometimes I'd kick him out sometimes just because of um, you know, <laughs> my parents are in the house and my brother and sister. But anyhow, um, so that was how I met Lars. Amazing, that. So yeah. So so the side. I got to tell you the side story real fast. So yeah, sure. Talking talking with Ron McGovney. Uh, I've talked to Ron a lot. I haven't talked to him in a few years, but you know, off and on, I've known Ron forever. Right. About about three years ago, we're talking, and 
as it turns out, and I never knew this, Ron, Hugh Tanner, and a guy named James Hetfield also were at the MSG show. No way. And Ron and Hugh Tanner and yeah. James Hetfield were standing right behind me. They were also pushing. <laughs> oh they were the guys pushing on me, most likely, because <laughs> they were right up against the stage trying yeah. to watch Shaker. Can you believe oh that? God. That is amazing. And I, and I only found that out a few weeks ago, or a few years ago from talking with Ron, maybe three, four years ago. Wow. <laughs> and that is, anyhow. That is amazing. Um, yeah. Your, your story brought up so many thoughts in my head, like going back to when you checked out the first, uh, when you got your first Blue Oyster Cult album. And it just, I, I, I was lucky enough to be, I think, like the last generation that could go to a record store and see right. an album cover and be like, oh, I have no clue what this sounds like, but it looks cool. <laughs> right. And but, you just buy it because it's shrink-wrapped. Yeah, and you buy yeah. it. That's what I would do. Then you yeah. go home and see what happens, and hopefully you like it. And, yeah. <laughs> but, and, and it's amazing. It's amazing when Working Man comes on or, 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 or Rock Bottom, you know, or it's like, right. I mean, I kind of knew what the Scorpion sounded like, but it's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, or, or you know, or, or Judas Priest. Bought a cold. I bought Sad Wings of Destiny because it looked heavy. Yeah. And it just looked demonic and heavy. I didn't know what they sounded like. <laughs> right. And that, that's why I bought Jews Priest because of the album cover. Yeah. I had not a clue. Yeah. You know, it wasn't radio stations. And then, of course, I went and saw them and whatever. Yeah. Right. So, so then you. And believe me, I've gotten a lot of bad records, too. But anyhow. <laughs> well, that, that, that does happen, too. But when you find the, the right one, you know, there's nothing better when you're like, I'd never even heard of this band. And then you can share it with your friends and. All that stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I was I was the guy. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I'm interested to know more about uh, your early days there with Brian Slagel. You you know you mentioned how you met. Um, I know that you two collaborated on the new Heavy Metal Review magazine, and you were there, right? Kind of at the start of uh, Metal Blade. So before we you know really jump more into Lars and. Metallica and that story. Can sure. you give us a little background on that? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll, I want to. I actually spent all, uh, spent getting my my linear notes together. So I'll just give you a one, <laughs> and I'll lead, I'll lead you to that. Um, so so uh, after Lars came up, then I went down to his place, and he had the front bedroom, empty middle bedroom, parents in the rear, and again just sharing the whole record thing with him. Yeah. And early and, and sometime in January '81, I, he came up to my house and I brought him out to Brian's house. So that's how he met Brian. Okay. So over a course of a few months, uh, we would go record shopping. Sometimes I'd go to Lars and we'd go shopping down there. Sometimes Brian would come to my house and then I'd, I'd drive down to Newport and we'd go shopping with Lars or, or, or Lars would come up. But it was funny because Lars was very aggressive in his record collecting. And literally, we, we, we would be driving around in my Volkswagen Scirocco. And Brian was rather large back in those days, so he'd always ride shotgun. Mm-hmm. Lars is in the back. But literally, we'd be rolling up to a record store, and I'm still parking, and Brian's face is being shoved into the windshield and dashboard as <laughs> Lars is pushing him forward so he could get out the car and be the first one in to buy the only copy of whatever. You know, it was, a, <laughs> it was, quite, it was quite funny. And yeah. then, and then, then, and then, then, um, Lars and I would order records from Bullet and stuff, and sometimes they come to my house, sometimes they come to his house. Right. And once, and 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 we discovered some band called Holocaust, heavy metal mania. Now, how heavy does that sound? So, <laughs> right away, right, right away, two twelve, 
two 12 inches, you know, and then we'll get to this tiger thing, you know, yeah. and, and I'd write the check, you know, and he'd give me some money and the check goes, all right. Well, he wanted that package to go to his house some, for some reason. So, you know, three weeks later, I get a phone call. Hey, hey I got the package. I got it. I got a heavy metal. Yeah, yeah. I'm all, I go, great. I go, great. He goes, but there's a problem. I said, well, what? He goes, well, your Holocaust 12-inch kind of got melted. What do you mean if my hot copy got melted? <laughs> well, I took I took one out. I left it on the stove. My mom was making me mac and cheese, and she turned it on, and that record kind of worked. I said, well, why isn't that your copy and it's my copy? You know, some <laughs> asshole. So I, I hop in the car, and I drive 75 miles to get my melted Holocaust and whatever. And so we head back for a few hours. I come, literally come home, and the next day I have my mom ironing my record on the ironing board to try to flatten the thing out. So on him, but it's just, yeah. And then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then there's this Iron Maiden live at the rainbow theater video. Holy shit. You can see Iron Maiden live yeah. right away. Send off for the VHS. comes back. Lars flies up to the house. <laughs> we put it in the machine and we're hearing stuff, but we're not seeing anything. And it's like, Oh, and I didn't know anything about NTSC and PAL. Yeah. This was back in the day when they had different formats. Oh, my God. So then, of course, I had to spend $100 to get the thing converted. But finally, we got this, you know, <laughs> that took another two weeks, got to see <clears throat> Iron Maiden. But it was like, just, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, you're tripping over yourself trying to, you know, right. trying to keep up with this stuff. So, um, and, and, and I, now I'm not quite sure this story. But I was, uh, Judas Priest played the Swing Auditorium on April 21st, 81. Now, some people say that's where Lars was introduced to James. Yeah. That he introduced Lars to James at that concert. I was at that concert. I saw, I think I saw Lars was there with my brother. I don't, you know, I wasn't, I was at that show. I don't know if that's where they actually met, but that's, that's an aside. Right around that same time, Lars came over one day to headbang and hang out. And he brings this guy with him. Hey, this is my friend, James. Oh, hi. And it was James Hetfield, right? Yeah. So, so James and I connected rather quickly because we're both from L.A. And, you know, Lars is European. He's just different, you know. Right. And, 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 and James and I grew up in the same smog, same freeways, you know, same everything. So I had the Schenker poster in my room, the iconic poster. I had Scorpions. I had a, a 78 Flying D. I had Aerosmith. You, yeah. you know, and James had a a jean jacket on with, with patches, you know, more American, Ted Nugent, that kind of thing. So we, um, you know, it was, it was easy just to be with him. He's kind of quiet, but you know, he, he was into, he was into it like Lars. And so we, yeah. we were, we were, we were doing all that. We were headbanging and whatever in the room. And then we went downstairs and I, this is the classic <laughs> James story. So he's 16 at the time, right? Saturday right. afternoon, my dad, they're sitting on my parents' blue flower couch, Lars and James. And my sister's making chocolate chip. She made chocolate chip cookies. She brings out these cookies, sets them down, and we're all munching and stuff. Mom's in the kitchen or fold laundry somewhere. My dad's watching golf in the other room. I come from a very, fairly conservative family. Yeah. And all of a sudden, James reaches into his jean jacket, and he pulls out a fifth of whiskey, and he starts downing whiskey. And it's like, holy shit, dude. Put that away. I'm going to get my ass kicked if my dad sees that. You know, because yeah. he has a 16-year-old dude downing whiskey <laughs> in my parents' living room. <laughs> and I... I, I told that story to James a few years ago, and he laughs, and he goes, yeah, I guess I had a drinking problem back then. <laughs> like, so, oh, that was, that was, uh, that was, uh, that was that. So that's one, that's one of my first memories. So, wow. um, 
And so then he, uh, he'd come over once in a while with, with Lars. And then Lars took off for, uh, for, and we watched like the midnight special, the Don Kirshner rock concert, yeah. went to a few local parties. Um, and then sometime in, uh, I want to say mid 82, he was over there and we went and saw him with my sister's band who she was a silent, a silent member of Warlord. And they were rehearsing over in North Hollywood. I remember oh, cool. taking them over, over to that, but yeah. backing up. So, so Lars has off to Europe, right? Right. And one night the phone rings and I pick it up and it's Lars calling and, and he's telling me what's going on. He goes, Hey, I'm hanging out with diamond head. I said, what? You're hanging out with diamond? No way. He goes, yeah. I said, no, you're not. He goes, here, you want to talk to Sean Harris? <laughs> sure. And he put Sean Harris on the phone. <laughs> it's like, how does Lars do this? Wow. The, how does this guy do this stuff? I so, mean, did, was that surprising to you, knowing his, knowing him and knowing his personality? Yes and no, because, I mean, my friend Dana at Moby Disc told me time and time again, don't bring that annoying little Dutch kid in here. He's driving me crazy. <laughs> Because <laughs> Lars would just be aggressive and pass yeah, there. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he just, re, he guys, the guy was relentless. So, yeah. yeah, Dana used to say, God, don't bring that little Dutch guy in. I said, I think he's from Denmark. I don't care. He's annoying. <laughs> so, so, anyhow, yeah. so, so right around that time, now I'll get to your, I'm sorry, it took me so long to get your question. Oh, but no, I, I love I do, all this. I, Please continue. <laughs> I do remember going back down to Lars's one day where I was down there we hanging out. In his front bedroom, and the front bedroom looked over the tennis courts, and bedroom's a mess and whatever. And his parents right. live in the back. He goes, "Hey, I want to show you something." And and we go to the middle bedroom, it's a small bedroom, and he opens the door, but hits and it only open it halfway. It goes kunk, and he slips in there, and I go in there, and it's a full drum kit. And I I go, "What's this?" He goes, well, "I want to learn how to play drums and start a band." And I said. Yeah, right. And I said, you're going to get kicked out of this condo complex. This is a shared wall. You can't play drums in here. You're going to yeah. uh, get thrown out of Newport Beach. Wow. So I literally closed the door, and he starts pounding away loud as hell. I just went to the front room. And, you know, my mind is, yeah, right. So anyhow. <laughs> anyhow. Right, right around that time, I had met somebody named Sylvie Simmons, who was working for Sounds Magazine. Right, and I and, and I think she was also Kerrang was starting up too, or did that start? I don't know, maybe that started early '82. But anyhow, um, Brian says to me, "Hey, why don't we do a fanzine? You know, like Kerrang or, right. or like Sounds?" Yeah. Or, I think Kerrang was going. So it was Brian's idea. He took the lead on it, but I did a lot of the writing, even though I didn't like writing. But I ended up doing a lot of writing and, <laughs> and, and, and collecting pictures, you know, and it's helping out. And that was, that was fun. We, we were doing that. And then, and then, yeah, three months, four months into that, he goes, Hey, why don't we do a, uh, an album like metal for mothers? And I said, sure. I said, but what kind of, you know, how are we going to pay for all this? And, and, and we decided that we would go around and find bands, that already had a recording because I already knew the Steeler guys and they had yeah. Cold Day in Hell. And there were bands out there now recording their own records. And, you know, Molly Crew did it later and other bands. And so right. we basically were going to clubs and finding bands. Like, I think he knew somebody that knew Rat. And and um, um, there was, you know, obviously, he, he knew the guys like in Sirithungle and then Bitch was running around. So we kind of had our own, you know, we, you know, we, my tastes were different than his, but yeah, I said, yeah, okay. And so my, my brother and, uh, put a little band together called Avatar with my sister 
And so I said, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. We, you can be on it. You got to, you know, pay for your own recording. So right. that was kind of the gist of it all. And then there was malice and so on and so forth. And so somewhere in there, like I want to say September, Lars calls me up and he goes, hey, I hear you're doing a heavy metal record, you know, compilation. I want to be on it. I said, you don't even have a band. He goes, well, I'm starting one with James. And I said, uh, okay. He goes, well, I got to be on it. You got to promise. You got to promise me a spot. I said, all right, I'll give you a good slot. I'm sure it's going to be fast and heavy knowing you. He goes, of course. I said, all right. Yeah. So I, I said to him, you know, I said, fine with me. Check with Brian. Brian signed off on it. So it was kind of like we all kind of had to kind of like, you know, manage our own our own bands. Not that Metallica was my band. Right. But in the course of it, I said, I said, because I, 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 I saved a slot for Avatar to close up side A. And Brian was saving slots for his favorites, and, I, and then I told Brian, "I'm going to save, I want to save Metallica for the last song." And I told Lars, and I said, "This, you're going to do the last song. It's going to be fast and heavy, and you're going to close out, close out the record, and then have some kind of explosion at the end if you can do something like that. That way, you know, that was like the, you know, the, the final, you know, it's the right. final fireworks or whatever. Yeah. And so that was, you know, that's kind of the gist of it all. So we just we were progressing along with it, and then and then this is a. Uh, in late October, I want to say, Lars calls me up and he says, hey, James is really having a hard time singing and playing guitar. Would you play guitar? And would you join the band? And it's like, wow. uh, yeah. And it's like, uh, <laughs> I've got two and a half months or a month and a half to complete college, beat my brother out of college. If I quit college, I'm going to get kicked out of the house. Plus, I'm working 32 hours a week at, at the supermarket. Yeah. And Lars has got this crazy idea. And it's like, I better not because my mom will kick me out of the house and, and I can't commit to that because he wanted five nights a week in Downey, you know, yeah. uh, at, at Ron McGovney's house where James was kind of living. And, and they had their they had one of the guest houses set up as right. the uh, rehearsal for Metallica. So I, I you know, I, I opted out of that. But, you know, I thought that it was much of a, you know, who knew, you know, but whatever. You know, I can't yeah. I can't say anything other than that did come about. So, um. So Metal Massacre was progressing, and I remember the day that we were gonna we were going to um, master down in Hollywood at the Bijou Studios, and I had a little three by five cards, and we were just kind of moving them around on my parents' kitchen table. My sister's making Brian and I pancakes, and then we had all the elements in a box, except for uh, Metallica. And then Lars was supposed to meet us up there, you know, before the mastering, you know, right. with, with the um, Metallica <laughs> song. Yeah. Jesus. Typical Lars. So, <laughs> you know, and it's like, you know, I, I was paying for half a metal massacre and Brian was paying the other half. It was 1200 1200 bucks. Right. And so we get, we get down to the Bijou studios, literally waiting outside, standing on the sidewalk. And I'm staring down where Amoeba records is. I don't know if you know Hollywood that well, but I was looking South standing on Coenga, basically Coenga and sunset. Right. And, standing there and all of a sudden here comes Lars running around the corner from where the Jack in the box used to be. And he comes running up and okay, I'm here. I'm here. And it's like 10 to three. Right. And so, so, so Brian goes, well, where is it? And Lars pulled out, pulls out of his hip pocket. The first Metallica song called hit the lights on cassette. And Brian goes, well, where's the 50 bucks? Because we were mastering on quarter inch and right. I, I hadn't talked, I don't remember ever talking to Lars about, you know, having to provide a quarter inch because they couldn't or the yeah. $50. He was working that out with Brian. So, so, so Lars says, of course, 
well, I thought you were paying for it. Brian <laughs> says, no, I told you you're paying for it. Lars says, well, no, you said you're going to pay for it. And Brian says, no, we don't have any money to pay for this. You're supposed to pay 50 bucks so we can transfer it to quarter inch. So Lars, what does he do? His head turns to me, <laughs> cranked over to me. And he goes, God, you got to have 50 bucks. You please tell me you have $50. You know, and I go, I don't know. And I reach in my back pocket. And unbeknownst to me, I had put extra money in my wallet that day. I had $52 in my wallet. Wow. <laughs> and so I pull out 50 bucks. And he's like freaking out. He goes, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You saved us. You saved us. You'll be known. You'll be known as John 50 Bucks Corners on every Metallica record ever. <laughs> I, oh, okay. That never happened. <laughs> but, and, and, and backing up back to late 81, Lars had called me with six potential names for his new band. Right. And he was at, wanted to get my opinion. And I don't remember all the names other than I think one of them was Hellgrinder. And then, and then Metallica. And when he said Metallica, I thought to myself, I like it, but I think of, I think of, uh, of like a big robot. Because I used to grow, I grew up with a, a, a cartoon called Gigantor. Right. So I, my first thought was Gigantor, something of Metallica. It's like some big metal, yeah, metal yeah, yeah. whatever. But, you know, but I said, well, I like this one and I like this one. And that was it. But anyhow. <laughs> So fast forward, fast forward to the John 50 bucks Corneron story. So having, having said that they appeared on metal massacre. Wow. Yeah. And, um, then, then, um, the, uh, the, the, the radio city show. And there was about, it was their first show, about 30 people there and Mustang broke a string straight out of the gate. So that kind of <laughs> slowed the show down. But once, once it got up, you know, it was, it was loud and, loud and kind of thin and james's voice was about three octaves higher and he had no guitar he was just singing <laughs> you know you know most of it was diamond head covers you know there was yeah right i think i think um what was it uh jump on the fire and, and hit the lights yeah yeah i think that was about the only original i think there so might have been you, one other one in there when you heard uh the recording of hit the lights was that the first time you really heard what they had to offer very, very first time. I had not heard anything prior to that. Wow. Yeah. So what was your, what was your thought? Were you, were you surprised? Was it what you expected? Was it? I was, I, I didn't really have any expectations. I was, I was happy yeah. that it was fast paced. I thought right away, the drum intro reminded me of weapons set the stage alight. And so I thought, well, Lars is, you know, he's, he's interjecting that European influence. Yeah. I thought the guitar solo was okay. I thought James's voice, voice wasn't that good, but my main thing, and I don't remember saying this at the time, but James reminded me a few years back. I, I, I said that the rhythms are loose. And I guess I said that either to James or I said it to someone, but I got back to James that the rhythms are loose. Because I was a big Rudolf Schenker fan. So right. uh, a rhythm guitar was very important to me. And, and, I, and maybe I just felt they were just sloppy and just, you know, kind of all over the place. Yeah. So I, I didn't think a lot of it other than, hey, you know, they got a song on a record. That's got to make Lars happy. You know, I kept my promise. Sure. He had the explosion at the end, you know, and I was happy for everybody, you know? Yeah. And, and it, you know, and so when we had our explosion and, and it was, it was good. So, um, yeah, that, that's a good question. I, I just, I did say the rhythms were loose. James reminded me of that years later, but <laughs> it's funny I, how I, that I, stood I, with them as like, you know, obviously now he's like a rhythm guitar master. <laughs> oh my God. He's the greatest. Yeah. I mean, it was that, and, and that, that, that I, he said that to me, 2011 or 12 armored Saint were playing at the house of blues. 
I want to say Metallic uh, Metal Blade's 30th anniversary show or something. And, and James and Lars were up backstage, or not backstage, but they're in the up in the seats looking down, and I was hanging yeah. out with them. And they, they came, I was sitting in the private section with my then girlfriend. And, and the coolest thing was that they sat, we said hi, and we were watching Armored Saint. And, and during the show, I mean, James is sitting there air guitaring, and Lars is hitting, the, hitting his hands on the table as a drummer. It's like, this yeah. is really cool. Right. So after the show was over, I introduced my, my, the girl I was with to James and Lars. And then, and then I, then I, 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 I said, I said the drinking story, you know, about James on the couch. And he started, that's when he laughed and said, Oh, you know, I, I, you know, I guess I had a drinking problem back then. And then he goes, and because, and then he goes, and he just out of the blue and I didn't have blown me away. He goes, he goes, because of you, he's pointing at me. I'm a, I'm a better guitarist. Wow. Said, huh? And he goes, yeah. When the, we did first, when we did the first hit, the lights. You said the rhythms were loose, and and I and I really tried to uh, get, improve my rhythm playing. And I said, oh, I, I'm sorry. I hope I didn't piss you off. He goes, no, I'm glad you said something. No, but and it blew that's me amazing. away because I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. I, and it's like I was really, I was really touched by that. And I thought, wow, wow. that's really yeah. cool. But see, that's that's James. That James is so cool and so he's so you know he's just he's just a good good soul. You know, he's just yeah. You know, he's, he's, he's a giver. So anyhow, that was, that was a touching moment for me. So the yeah, second that... show they ever did was the whiskey show. And this was a good little story um, <laughs> opening for Saxon. So I, 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 as anybody would make compilation cassette tapes, you know, you'd have Holocaust, one song, Tigers, a song, right. Sweet Savage, Savage, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I had brought a tape in because I guess I knew the house guy. I said, hey, play this. You know, this is this would be good house music, you know, for this crowd, you know. Sure. So he's playing it, you know, and it's going out. And it's before Metallica was going to go on. I was upstairs, or upstairs. And I'm just kind of standing, looking out. All of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see this flash. And it's Lars running out of the dressing room. And, and he stops and he, like, looks around. He's just, like, looking. He's looking. And he's, like, you know. And then he sees me. He's, like, panicked. And he comes <laughs> running up to me. He goes, he goes, is, is, is that your tape? I said, yeah, 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 that's my, that's my tape. He goes, what, what song's next? And I said, I, I think Savage, I think Savage, let it loose. Oh, shit, take it out, take it out. We're playing that tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and then the light bulb went off my head. It's like, oh, that's right. It's not supposed to be anyone else's song but Metallica's. It's like, oh, shit. So I ran over, we popped the tape out before let it loose could could be played over the house. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> oh yeah, that that was. Yeah, he had this panic look on his face. So, so fast forward a few months later, right. somehow I, I I'm down at Larges or something, and he hands me uh, a fresh copy of No Life to Leather, and it's like amazing i'm I've, I've listened to it with him and i said holy shit god you guys sound good yeah. and your songs are great awesome and so i i immediately drove drove it up or maybe the next day out to woodland hills and brian at the time was working at oz records and after the shop closed, i said you gotta i got something for you to listen to and i put it on and he didn't know who they were they were that good they had improved that wow. much yeah. i mean the jump the jump from the first hit the lights because the hit the lights on No Life to Leather made it onto the second pressing of Metal Massacre. And so the jump was amazing quality-wise, you know, and songwriting. Yeah. They got Dave Mustaine, and, and, you know, and Dave Mustaine was like the missing link. Right. And they really, they really put it together, and did they do a good job of it? It was amazing. Because I had not a clue. I really, I was working, 
And, and I'd go down once in a while and hang out at Ron's house and James would be there. Or, you know, I didn't, I didn't really, the, the, their room was so small where yeah. they were rehearsing. And, and I, I just, my mom always said, wear earplugs, you know, wherever you go. And I couldn't even stand in there with earplugs. They were just like rotting the earplugs. So it was so loud, <laughs> you know, and I know there was tension yeah. between Ron and, and Dave. And so it's like, eh, you know, and then, yeah. I, and then, then I distract Ron because we talk about cars or something. So yeah. I go down off and on, but it wasn't a lot. And then, and then Lars and James came up a few times. I think I told them they took them to see Warlord and uh, rehearsal, and we we just hang out a little bit. And then they then they got into their, you know, their their you know, their gigs here and there. And then at, at during that whole period, Sounds and Kerrang were doing like a L.A. heavy metal um, review of right. you know the up and coming bands. And Sylvie, she didn't she wasn't interested in doing it, so she had me do it basically. I went around. And got tapes and pictures of all the bands, and I helped her write them. I did all the all the music descriptions, and she she I think she put a special thanks to me. But basically, Metallica's first press, I believe, was mentioned in Sounds, and then right after that, they're in Kerrang. And I got a full color picture from Lars, and that's the famous picture of them in in the in the dressing room at the whiskey. I think and Lars is wearing like silver spandex. Oh yeah, wow. Yeah, and that, and that's I I put all that together, and still we got all that in Kerrang. It was like holy shit. Lars, yeah. you're in Kerrang in a full page, and that was their first. <laughs> that was their first European publicity. Wow. So, yeah, that's that was their. That was my gift, you know. I always, I always just like to help, you know. I just always that to help. Awesome. So, yeah. Do you remember? And then, and then, um, do you remember your? It, just to go back a little bit, do you remember like your uh, thought of uh, like Mustaine and um, when he came onto the scene, and then. Um, maybe you're working towards it, but do you remember? And I know they were they moved away from uh, LA shortly after this when they got Cliff. But do you have any memories of uh, meeting him in those early years? Meeting Cliff or Dave? Both Dave and Cliff. Yeah, Dave. Dave, I thought was was fire. Very intense. Yeah. Very, you know, he's fire. But he was the best musician. Yeah. And I think, and I think he also. Uh, yeah, and he also pushed James. He pushed him a lot. Yeah, and I and I I remember the first thing I thought about him was like, God, look at that guitar. It's got like how many tuners that thing have on there? You know, he had that BC Rich bitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but then yeah, then he had then he had six strings. But I just you know, I, you know Dave was Dave was a confident, cocky. You know, he's kind of a dick. And then you, then you could you could kind of see that like Dave and James are kind of bonding, and Raw was kind of being left out a little bit. You know, because yeah. of the. The, the, the different level. So I thought he was, you know, he was kind of, he was a needed ingredient. It's just that there was just a, you know, obviously a little too much, you know, if he could, you know, I'd drink the other guys, but yeah, he, but he was, he was, I just, I always thought he, this guy's fire, you know, he's yeah. fire, but he's got a lot going on and he's really, I, I have to, you know, I'm not taking away from anyone else, but I think adding Dave Mustaine, you know, really put him in the, you know, put, take him out of the, certain you know i don't want to say b league and put them in the a league but it definitely elevated their 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 quick their quick uh growth process because they had to grow yeah i think you know because dave was kind of pushing them in that direction is my feeling sure yeah so and then of course with the addition of Cl- uh, cliff and i do have a i do have my first memory but i i want to uh share one other thing that i again fascinating i just learned this year during covid which i never really put together but what is the common story out there on how Metallica met Cliff Burton? What is the story? That they see yeah. him at, they see trauma at the club and they're amazed by the bass player and they need to know 
who he is and you know they have a conversation right. with him and then you know eventually they they hound him or at least Lars hounds him until he uh agrees to join under the condition of uh them moving to San Francisco. Moving it right. Well that's the general story and that's the one I've always kind of read and heard about and that's kind yeah. of you know that's kind of the, the Brian Slagle story. Well uh trying it's just you know, trying to be as honest about everything because yeah, to me it's, to, to me it's important. Um and again, you could obviously clarify this with uh, James and Lars someday, but having talked with Pat Scott, and uh, are you aware of who Pat Scott is? I am not. Well, Pat Scott was like the, the version of me only in the South Bay. He was Lars's good friend and would help okay. Lars out a lot with, with uh, getting, getting drum cymbals. And just he's one of, the, one of the early guys, too. He's a very knowledgeable about the, the beginnings of Metallica. Yeah. And Pat now lives in Minneapolis. So we, we talked a lot. And, and, and actually what happened is that Pat was, was involved in the music scene a little bit, and he was trying to get in with some manager or some management company or something, something down, down there. Well, they invited him to a video shoot in September of 1982. Uh, it was a video shoot of a few songs by a, a San Francisco band called Trauma. Right. And P- Pat asked Lars to go with him because he didn't want to be bored by himself. So Lars went along with James. That's where they first saw Cliff oh, Burton. Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I had Pat go back and talk to one of the original members and the manager of the dates and stuff. Trauma played once in April of 82 at, at yeah. the Whiskey, I believe. Right, but that was way before. They weren't on, you know, the, he was not on, on Slagle or Lars's or James's radar because they didn't know about him, you know. They, right, yeah. They, you know. So they saw him in September. The next huh. night they, 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 they mixed after the video shoot, I guess they went back to the studio to mix some uh, more music. So I think James, James and, and Lars ran right up the cliff after the, the bass solo in the video. You can go on, you can go on YouTube and you can see the songs. Yeah. From the video, it, they put it up a few years ago. You can see it. Um, and that's where they first started really talking them up. So that's where the wow. wheels were turning there. Yeah. And then Trauma came back in October and they played, I think, the Troubadour. And, and that's where Brian first saw them. And Lars had told Brian that that was going to be our new bass player. So that's the way I believe it happened, that right. there was actually a video shoot. Pat was there. Pat, and Pat can verify that. I wasn't there, but I just think that's, that should be out there for the record. That's actually where James and Lars first saw Cliff Burton, which is at a video shoot in September of 82. And then they went to the, the, with the Troubadour show. In October, in October of '82, and that was it. After that, wow. the, their band manager took all their equipment and sold it in Canada, and that was the end of Trauma. Or something bad happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they were kind of out of business. So, yeah. So fast forward, the last, the, the last Ron Montgomery show was the 29th of November, '82. Yeah. Up there, and then the, and then Metallica moved up there. So, my first meeting with, or first memory of Cliff, is I went up there to the El Cerrito house that they were renting. And at that point, Lars needed money. So he started calling me and saying, Hey, I'll sell you this record or that record. Cause I was, you know, I was just fanatic about having records and sure, my, yeah. my, my collection and Lars had stuff I had. He had stuff I, I wanted. Right. So I go up there and I buy stuff. So the first time, first time I, um, I saw Cliff, I said, Oh, you like, you know, you're, you know, I said, I said, you like Chris, Chris Squire and geezer Butler. And he, he kind of looks at me and he goes, well, why do you say that? 
I said, because you're using a Rickenbacker and you're using a wallow pedal, and that's really cool shit. And he got this big smile on his face because there, there's some dude in the weeds about a wall on a bass. Because if you think of the intro to NIB, I mean, Geezer right. was probably the first, and Chris Squire was using it. And they're using that, you know, that kind of trebly, you know, Rickenbacker was a 4001. And it, yeah, it has a yeah. certain sound or whatever. Sure. Yeah. So that was my first memory. And he was, he was just mellow and cool, but he, but he had this yeah. real, real heavy punk side, you know, fast tempo shit. And man, nice guy. His dad, his dad had just passed away. Super nice guy. And uh, yeah, I didn't see them. I didn't see him that much other than they come through LA once in a while. Yeah. And uh, the few times I went up to El Cerrito to sell records. So, but, you know, they, they was like the missing link. Cause, you know, Ron, Ron, um, Ron was uh, half foot in, half foot out, and of course, a yeah, much yeah. better bass player. And, yeah, and he looked right. cooler up on stage. He had great hair and his bell bottoms. And, yeah, I mean, he, just, he, was a, he, was a, he was a badass. Yeah. He was a character. Definitely. He was a badass. Yeah. yeah. So it was good. And then awesome. Kirk Hammett pops in and he you know he finds out i'm an ingve uli fan and you know so that helps and <laughs> you know so. was he on your radar before metallica with exodus or anything or no not at all now? yeah no not at all uh i was sad to see dave go i understood why but, but yeah um, he was not on my radar at yeah. all well that is awesome so many amazing stories that's about the early days like i got a few little i can touch on just I saw them nice. open for Ozzy in 80, 86, and that was what I called the seat cushion show, where everybody started tearing up the seat cushions and throwing them, and that <laughs> oh, cost Metallica man. like a hundred grand or something. I don't know, ten thousand. Yeah, but there was like yeah. during Metallica, the people are just ripping, ripping off the seat cushions and throwing them. Oh, so that wow. was crazy. <laughs> I, I was I was at the first secret show with Jason Newstead at the Country Club. Oh wow! Yeah, that was that was insane. They they, they they were the unannounced band you know, before yeah. Metal Church went on. Amazing. So right after that, I went up to San Francisco to stay with Lars in his first house he owned. Right. And and he and it had a separate garage, and I spent a day or two with James and Jason soundproof in the garage. And God, I wish I had pictures of that. You know, I get, you got James with a tool belt on, and Jason. Jason was kind of a carpenter. <laughs> And here I am, yeah. and we're putting up egg crates or whatever mattresses and shit. And of course, Lars, of course, Lars isn't going to help. You know, he's too busy, whatever, getting his, getting his nails done. I don't know what he was doing. But he, was, he wouldn't come out and help. <laughs> Lazy bastard. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and, and living living with Lars is like turning into a vampire. You know, you you, you go to bed at five and get up at two. It's like, oh my god. And then, and then we. And then, he, and then, he, then one night we drove from San Francisco or Alameda all the way to Sacramento to see Deep Purple, and we met Richie Blackmore, and that was kind of interesting. Lars was real nervous, and I remember we got to see meet Richie Blackmore before you know before they went on for a couple of a uh, couple of minutes, and yeah, that was kind of cool. Yeah. yeah, and then and then and then I guess you know the I mean I, the the last big one was or interesting one was in. Nine, it was 90 or 91, I don't know, when they were doing the Black Album, they were recording in North Hollywood, and that was close to Studio City. And so I'd see Lars once in a while, and one, one, one day, or 90, he says, listen to this. And he plays this song, and it's a real ballad, and I'm listening, and he goes, you know, this is some of our new music. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really kind of not Metallica, but it's pretty, it's nice. Yeah. And, he, and then I'm listening to the vocals, and he goes, guess who's singing? 
And I said, I don't know who's singing. I, can't, I don't recognize the voice. And he gets this big smile on his face. He goes, that's James. I got James wow. to sing that way. I said, that's James? Yeah, wow. and so it was, it was no, nothing else matters. Yeah. So anyhow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I remember him, Lars, being so proud because he got James to sing a ballad. So I thought that was kind of cool. And, that is amazing, yeah. Yeah, and the last, the last, yeah, I've been the, I was at the 30th anniversary up at the Stone. But the last fun one was at the Record Store Day in 2015 when they played in Rasputin's. And then afterwards they had the little party gathering at the house that they used to live in. And that was kind of fun. The oh, old yeah. house in El Cerrito. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, uh, yeah. I got a chance to visit San Fran. Uh, it was a couple of years ago now. So I did, you know, my Metallica pilgrimage tour and <laughs> drove mm-hmm. by the old house, which. <laughs> yeah. Right yeah. next to the gas station down the street from the Burger King or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The Metallica pilgrimage. That's funny. Well, if you ever come to LA, I'll give you, I'll give you the pre Metallica pilgrimage if you want. I'll Amazing, take you to Moby Dick, my parents' house. And, and, uh, you know, Oh, I got, I got one other annoying large story if you want to hear it, but if you're, of course, I, I am, I, I am all ears for any stories you want to share. I love this. So it was a long Beavis and Butthead session at my parents' house. And finally, like at three in the morning, it's like, Lars, you got to go. I got to, I got to kick you out. Okay. 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 <laughs> so, you know, he, he takes off and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm literally laying in bed upstairs and I'm falling asleep. All of a sudden I hear this, this noise against my window. And it's like, I wake up and there's these rocks being thrown at my window. What is going on? And I look out my window. And there's Lars down in the in the in the in the in the, in the, the freaking front yard. It's like, oh my god, I can't get rid of this guy. Oh. So I go down there. I go out and goes, dude, dude, I, I'm almost out of gas. Because before he left, he goes, where's a gas station? And I told him. And he comes. Yeah. And so and then he goes, I'm almost out of. Yeah, I, I, I went to get gas, and I realized I didn't bring him the gas cap key. <laughs> And see, oh, it's got a locking gas cap on the pacer. Like, oh my god! So it's like, all right, shit. Open the garage, back it in. You know, be back in all the ways. I'm looking at it, and the gas cap was small enough diameter where I could get to the bolts that hold the actual flue on. So I literally yeah. took twelve bolts off the car to pull the whole gas flue out. And so here, and then he goes, okay, I'll be right back. And there goes Lars down to the gas station. You know, in the dark and whatnot, with a gas flu. Yeah. You know, and he puts gas and comes back. I have to put everything back together. So finally, at four in the morning, I get rid of him. And I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> it's just, it's just all this, just, just, uh, just stupid stuff. But you I know, have to, just, I have to ask what your parents thought of <laughs> well, Lars, of, of Lars, James, like just the whole crew that was that would come over and. But especially Lars, he seems like the biggest uh, character of them all, especially back in the day. I, I, I think I think they really enjoyed him just because he was a character. He was animated. Yeah. He was from Europe, and my mom had just gone to Europe for her the first time, so she was yeah. interested and wanted to you know know about what he thought of art. You know, so I yeah, think they yeah. enjoyed it. And they 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 had had a lot of they, we had started to have kind of like, you know, motley people coming and going. My brother would set up his band in the living room when my parents go out of town. And right, yeah. In my Abbey list, you know, they were kind of, they were cool. They didn't really judge anybody. They, you know, they That's didn't cool. say anything about yeah. James. You know, James was just, you know, he's nice and pleasant. And, and yeah, I mean, and, yeah, they, yeah, my dad was a salesman and my mom was a dental hygienist, you know, about as basic right. as you get. Yeah. You know, you know, and, and it was just, but we were all we were all musical in our own ways. My brother played clarinet and guitar. My sister did piano. 
I just noodled on guitar, but I was just passionate about music and stuff. And, yeah. and, and it was always had music going in the house in some way. And yeah, and they were, it was fine. Long hair, jean jacket, you yeah, know, yeah. upside down, upside down pentagrams, no big deal, venom, whatever, <laughs> you know, just go to church yeah. on Sunday, you know, <laughs> you know, Italian, raised Italian Catholic and you got this guy here with, you know, a pentagram, you know, <laughs> And then a year later, I had Ingvay Malmsteen living there for a couple of weeks. It's like, you oh, know, wow. it was, well, that's the whole, oh yeah, no, I got a whole Ingvay story, you know, you know, if you was want to visit that. Was that related? No, no, that was Steeler related and then Uli oh, Rock wow. related. No, that was completely okay. not metal, but that was Mike Varney sending, sending the tape down to Ron Keel and then Ingvay comes <laughs> and they're living in a shithole. And then Ingve hates it down there. And then he, he, he liked me because I knew Uli. And then I took him to Disneyland. And then he goes, I'm going to quit this band. I can't live here. But he ended up living in my parents' house. And I took him around <laughs> to all the wow. shows. And I took him to auditions yeah. and stuff, you know, loaning him money. Yeah, because Metallica were, Metallica had, had flown the coop. They had left, they had left the nest. And that was the next, yeah. the next round. Okay. So from Metallica <laughs> to Ingve Malmsteen, you know. And, and in between, Amazing. you've got Armored Saint guys and you know, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. Warlord, and just it's just like you know, it's like I'm, I'm, <laughs> God bless my parents; they put up with all that stuff, you know. That's you amazing. Know. Those are yeah. great parents. <laughs> I, that, a heavy metal house in one way or another. There's a lot of you know, my mom and Uli when Uli would come and visit, and my mom loved him, and Uli would have dinner, and we went to the Getty Museum, and my mom loved Uli. Shit, you know, Uli's. Yeah. Is my iconic hero, and they end up staying there too. So, yeah, yeah, we definitely had some interesting people. <laughs> no, it was fun. Yeah, awesome. and then I saw Lars at the Metallica beer party the, a few weeks, few years ago. Yeah, um, that was kind of fun. Enter, enter night, the beer, and that was yeah. yeah then yeah, the last yeah. time I saw him was at the the Texas show. I went and met. I went with Brian, and yeah, we met Lars there just so we could say hi. And, oh, Kirk Hammond, I saw last year at the Palladium. Or the Avalon, oh, yeah. he, he played. He played for the UFO. That was cool. Oh, cool! Yeah, I yeah. remember hearing about that. Yeah, yeah, that was great. That was that was fun. And he, and he goes, I almost brought your guitar, but I came straight from Hawaii because <laughs> he he bought he bought a white flying V from me back yeah. in about 2011, and he was going to play that with UFO, but that was up in Northern California. He came straight from Hawaii, so he brought Greeny with him. So you know, he's got Greeny over a two million dollar guitar slung over his shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, I'm sure that'll suffice. <laughs> you know, but he goes, that's the first thing he says. He goes, oh, I would have brought you. I was going to bring your guitar. I said, well, you bought it. It's yours. But yeah, that would have been nice. Because he wanted to do the Michael, you know, the white flying V Michael Shanker thing. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I was curious if there was like a moment in all of this where you were like, oh my God, they're going to make it. They're going to, you know, be who they eventually became as the biggest metal band of all time was there ever a moment where you're like oh wow they're, they're, they're gonna do it they're gonna do it <laughs> i didn't i didn't ever think they'd be the biggest metal band of all time but they have yeah. an amazing amazing shelf life and an amazing marketing yeah I, I think i think it would probably be for me even you know with the venom raven tour you know yeah this is great this is cool and they're playing with some of their their favorites and it's awesome but i think when ride the lightning came out that's when I thought, holy shit, this is really yeah. good and strong, and they keep gaining momentum. And yeah. then, then I think I think when I heard "Ride the Lightning," you know, and they had the you know the, the, the really good production, right. and it's like, wow. And I said, this is this is great. But I guess for me, more than anything, it's when I'm standing, I'm standing um, 
at the Monsters of Rock at the Coliseum. And it's yeah. just like, and King Diamond's in the audience, and people are freaking out, and they're, and they're like ants pushing food over their heads, you know, but they're pushing the guardrail <laughs> to the stage. And it's like, oh, my God. I mean, this yeah. is unbelievable. And you hear, because I met them when they got off the bus. I was backstage. I was up at the, there's that famous shot. I think Halpin took it. It's like a fish lens, and they're standing there above the Coliseum, and it's kind of this fish lens shot. Mm. And I was standing right next. I was just off to the side because they had gotten wow. off the bus. Yeah, and, I, and I'm standing. I'm standing there. I'm thinking, eight years ago, I was giving Lars gas money to come to my house. <laughs> this is unbelievable. What the hell happened? Yeah, right. I, I was like, you know, but I think in '84 I had a sense of it, but I think it really was like in '88. Yeah, I uh, just standing at the Coliseum, and there's Van Halen, and I don't know, I forget who else played, but it's like, holy shit, this is yeah. unbelievable. I mean, even opening for Ozzy in '86, it was intense and crazy and. But I think I think that was it. And then Irvine Meadows, they played. I'm standing on the stage with Lars after the show. And it's just like, how did this happen? How did this happen? This is is this how is this how this is this how this happens? And you know, not knowing when you know five, six years earlier you you're standing there, you know, fighting over a cheeseburger or something, you know. It's just like <laughs> now Lars again, you know, has as many cheeseburgers. There there is one there is one off off the well I guess, you know what, I'm going to rewind that a little bit. I'll tell you exactly when I knew he made it. And this is a little off color, but we were standing backstage at that Deep Purple show in 87 in Sacramento. And this girl walks up to Lars and I, and she looks at Lars, she goes, are you Lars from Metallica? And he goes, no. <laughs> you look like Lars from Metallica. I don't know, who are you talking about? You know, And he pretended he wasn't. Mm-hmm. And she offered to, to give him a little, little, uh, a little, little, little fun in one of the in one of the portable toilets down the road if he wanted to be Lars. And I was like, oh my god, because six five years earlier Lars was looking at Playboy magazines in his room, and now he's got he's being solicited. That's what I think one of the first one. I said, oh, he's really a rock star. I'm standing yeah. there and a girl's offering you know to you know a, a certain certain act. You know, if if he wants to be Lars the drummer in Metallica, I think that's when I knew he made it. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> uh, Anyhow. Yeah, that's a good you know, you've asked you asked me some good questions, but that's a good question. So Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. These are these yeah. are amazing stories. I I am loving everything you have said. <laughs> I, I just wonder what they're gonna do for the fortieth. They're so good at marketing and coming up with interesting things. Really, right. they're just amazing. And yeah. you know, and Lars is the engine of the whole operation yeah. in a way where he's so creative and so, so, you know, driven still. And he, and, he, and he's, you know, and yeah, and I'm sure, you know, but I, I, I and maybe James is more, more creative than Lars. But I don't know. James, Lars is just unbelievable. He's a really unique, special person like they all are, but yeah. you know, what a, what a, what a blending of two individuals, Lars and James. It's like, you know, you know, Richards and Jagger, right? You know, yeah. Shanker and Moog, you know. Yeah. I mean, it just, you know, or, or Joe Perry and Stephen Tyler, you know, and it's just like, yeah. wow. You know, what a, what a just a chance, you know, and then they come together. And they're so op- polar opposites in some ways that they have the passions there. And that they're able to, you know, to mix it together. And they're like that, you know, that, that steel girder that's holding up the, the 17th floor on a skyscraper. And then, right. you know, the, the doors and wallpaper are Dave Mustaine. And then you change it to yeah. Hammett. And, you know, it's just... Cliff Burton comes in and he's the photocopier or something. You know, it's just like these <laughs> yeah. random random elements that all makes yeah. it happen and puts it together. 
And that's just it, that's one of you know it's one of the one in ten thousand always. It's really just the perfect combination of talent and determination, but also luck and yeah, everything yeah. that's like not even explainable in the universe has to like come together because it's really I mean, I mean where they are now and you know almost 40 years later is uh, it's it's beyond just you know making it as a band they are the band in a lot of ways it's really amazing oh it's 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 ridiculous i mean you know even from james having all that art talent i've got some of the original flyers and elements and him just coming up with a logo yeah. you know yeah. and the t-shirt and just and just you know lar and and james designing that or the first t-shirt which was slightly different and they wanted to do this and that you know there's that other talent there Here's one to chew on, and, and I guess you could apply this to many situations. But what if, what if, and I'm not, I'm not blowing my horn, but what if I didn't have fifty dollars and they didn't appear on Metal Massacre? What what happens? You know, it's like one of those what ifs. Because right. back in the day, if you were, you if you were on a record, that gave you street cred. That's you know that's how they started getting gigs. You know, right. I mean that's one of the reasons why they got the Saxon Whiskey gig, and that's why they got yeah. gigs because a lot of their ads are now appearing on Metal Massacre. You know, people don't realize that back in the day, if you're on a record, you are definitely, you know, top tier. You just yeah. don't get on a record or, or you have money to pay for recording. You are something. Sure. Yeah. So, so it's just, you know, it's just ironic to think if they hadn't jumped on Metal Massacre, what would have happened? Well, Metal Massacre like I, too? Yeah. Or would they have stayed together? I don't know. Well, like I said at the start of the episode, you know, Lars Ulrich, uh, you know, he, is on record as saying you along with Brian and other people are like, there would be no Metallica though without you guys, because you were that person in that moment who bailed them out <laughs> at the $50, yeah. you know, but yeah. you, you said you had like $52. Imagine if you only had like the two bucks, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause a 50, 50 it could have been a completely for... different history, you know? Yeah, I was pretty broke after, you know, financing half a metal massacre. And it's just, <laughs> right. You know, I, I, I'm working at a supermarket stacking grapefruit or bagging groceries at the time, you know. <laughs> you know, and, it, and, it's, and I was spending the rest of my money on records. But I, I remember that morning on a whim, I said, well, I better take everything, all the money I have done, you know, cash, just in case yeah. something. There's some, you know, and so the half 50 bucks is, you know, that's carrying around a lot of money for yeah. a young guy, you know. Yeah, yeah. Then it was... <laughs> I always remember fifty-two dollars. Like <laughs> Lars left me with two bucks, bastard. <laughs> I'm sure he paid you back too, right? <laughs> I don't even remember to be honest with you, but he, he, Lars, Lars has paid me back in many other ways, and I'm yeah, always, yeah, yeah. always grateful for every, every, everything he's ever done for me and my, you know, my friends, and and so, so, Lars, you can keep the fifty bucks. <laughs> if you didn't pay me back it's okay <laughs> uh, yeah no I, I just i honestly i feel so blessed that i could even just be part of any of this it was like yeah gosh i just that's wonderful it's a wonderful thing and still see them being healthy and successful and the last the yeah. last disc was great you know and i'm, I'm happy oh, for so them. good yeah james looks good again you know and yeah i'm happy yeah. for them all you know and rob's a wonderful guy you know i and and Kirk's a great guy, and and I'm glad Mustang survived cancer, and he's doing well too. So yeah, you know, yeah, happy for, I'm happy for them all. It's really cool to see because I mean, even beyond Metallica, like the uh, a lot of things have come full circle for like the big four of thrash 
in a lot of mm-hmm. ways, you know, like we, if you look at Megadeth and Anthrax and uh, it's just really good to see, you know, all those bands still going and not just still going, but like they're in it, putting on great live shows, putting out good albums. They're still very relevant. They still got a large fan base. It's just really cool to see. I, I love it. I love it when I see like young generations walking around with the shirts and stuff. Yeah. To me, it just bring it, you know instead of having to listening to Drake or Beyonce or some of that other you know <laughs> yeah. gar- garbage as I call it. <laughs> I mean, like just last Friday, I'm sitting in a little local town eating a frozen yogurt with my son, and this yeah. and this kid, short-haired, 15-year-old kid, walks by with a Slayer shirt on and with his buddy, and I said, "Hey, you like Slayer?" And he looked at me and he goes, "Yeah, yeah, I love them." I said, "Yeah, I was at their last show, man. They're you know this, what a what a great band." And you can see him kind of light up because he's getting some kind of recognition you yeah. know, for you because he's probably wearing a slayer shirt in a fairly you know conservative environment you know and i think yeah, it's yeah, great yeah. and i, and I awesome. always want to give him a, a shout out yeah and it's like you know some something you can kind of you know a, a, a 30 second bonding with somebody who's you know three generations behind you or four <laughs> generations yeah you know i mean i have a running uh joke with my wife because it's always true we'll be out like if i go out somewhere and i'm wearing a shirt tie whatever i have to dress up for nobody ever says oh brandon you're, you're looking nice today oh i like your shirt right but if, if i go out in public and i'm wearing a metallica shirt without fail at least one person will be like dude i love your shirt metallica <laughs> like, like it's just <laughs> yeah, like instant hey. bond you know <laughs> dude i love your tie your shirt yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, metallica metallica is 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 the kleenex of heavy metal i mean they're yeah. the brand you don't say yeah. facial tissue you say pass me a kleenex metallica <laughs> right yeah well when you think of heavy metal you think of metallica because they just Without done so doubt, well yeah. with not only the music but also the branding yeah. the, the the style the acceptance of it and the crossover with other with other artists from, from marion faithful to lady gaga you know lou yeah. reed to, to to still being relevant and there's such a relevant band yeah. still it's amazing and there's the shelf there's, life is amazing the, yeah there's no and there's no i've said this before on the podcast too there's nobody else in metal that can do those mm-hmm. things you just named like think of i i cannot think of another metal band that could uh you know perform with lady gaga still yeah it still be like while doing their own thing and still be you know not attacked by by it not that they've not had their naysayers over the years for various things but you know what i'm saying like this they can do x y and z and still be them in success yeah <laughs> yeah i mean you, yeah you've got you've got the bass player looks like he's a topanga topanga canyon surfer which he is you got you know you got the lead guitarist running around and you know it's like he could be i don't know and you know, in, in a, uh, a Duran Duran sometimes, you know, but it was cool, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then the guy who's singing all the time looks like he's the guitarist of 38 Special half the time, you know. But it's like, yeah, you, know, <laughs> you know. And there's some little guy with a baseball cap behind them all. But, yeah, you know, it's just like. <laughs> Toothpicking you know, them it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's just like, you know, but then they can come together as an yeah. you know, extremely well-oiled, you know, metal machine. It's just great. It's funny, <laughs> you know. It's just funny, so you know, I'm very happy for them, and, and yeah. I, I hope they I hope they can make it to 50. That's what I would love for them to do. And that thing, I'm oh, sure yeah. they can if they want to. Yeah, they might not be able to play fight fire with fire as fast, you know. But you know, we'll see. <laughs> well, <laughs> don't don't tell that to Lars because he I think by the sounds of it he'll take it as a personal challenge and make sure that it's even faster. 
<laughs> that's why I said it. Yeah. Because I know it. That's why I said it in case he ever hears this. No. Of course, you know. I'm sure James is James is keeping that wrist nice and loose. He can play those rhythms. I mean, I, yeah. I hear these rhythms and some of those, yeah, it's just like, wow. Yeah, but, you know, and his leads are great. Yeah. His leads are really, I love his leads. His leads are very thoughtful. He thinks, yeah. he thinks the solo's out. I agree. So, yeah. And Lars is a damn good drummer. Bastard. Yeah. I mean, I knew him when he was not a good drummer. No, I'm, I'm still, you know, people, a lot of people like to malign him, but I think you're jealous. I mean, this guy started with nothing. Yeah. And he just, with sheer determination, just did it. And it's like, oh, he's a damn good drummer. I love his style. I, I know. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think he, I always tell people he has a style that's uniquely his own. Like it's when you hear Lars Ulrich play, you know, it's yeah. him. And yeah. he's also like, I, I cannot think of another drummer who plays drums. Like they're the front man of the band, like jumping up and down and running circles around the drum set. I think, you know, uh, maybe like, a uh, a Tommy Lee's as charismatic, but he's not playing the parts that Lars is right. playing. You know, it, it's it and, and well, Lars does lot. not do it in, in like a cartoony way either. Which yeah, it, it's just a it is he's amazing and, and not not mentioning like you've already said his business and branding mind and they, they just wouldn't. I've heard people say, "What if they had a different drummer?" And I said, "They would not be Metallica." No, they <laughs> wouldn't. Lars, Lars is yeah. Yeah, they wouldn't be Metallica. Yeah, you know they not. need all those pieces. You know, because Lars is just a drummer. He's he, you know, he's he's the nucleus, as much as James yeah. is the nucleus. And absolutely, and and, and it's yeah, and yeah, you can't. No, he's not. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's hard. I know exactly what you're saying. It's just like yeah, yeah, get rid of uh, uh, Keith Richards and and you know get another rhythm <laughs> right. guitarist and still be the Rolling Stones. <laughs> Anybody can play Joe Perry's leads, you know, we'll get somebody else with a hat, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, so all I all these stories have been amazing. I've really loved talking to you. Um and it, it it's Thank so you. it's so great to hear you still such a fan and so passionate about the scene and these bands. And it, it, this has just been really awesome, John. I appreciate it. Yeah. It still runs in my blood. My, I think I annoy my son, but I told him <laughs> you're going to go see kiss, whether you like it or not, because you're going to thank me, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, because you've seen, you got to see the last Van Halen show. You got to see black Sabbath with Ozzy. You see Scorpions. You see Metallica. You're going to see kiss and maybe yeah. see ACDC. Then my job is done. <laughs> well i have uh i have an 11 month old at home it's my she's my first okay. so i uh oh boy you're I, miss, I, you're missing, she's missing the window that's, that's too bad i i know but i i'm like i'm like all right i don't i don't want you to grow up too fast but fast enough where i can bring you to a metallica show at least you know yeah. um, well, she could be 10 she but, could be 10 or 11 yeah see the, the the last tour right but i will say she already uh she already is a Metallica fan. She has very strong reactions to their music because I play her music wow. every day. So, and, yeah. and when when Metallica comes on, she like just kind of like smile and like kind of shake around. So I'm like, I think she likes it. Cute, cute. <laughs> and, she, uh, likes the, she likes the she likes the energy. It's just that energy. Yeah, that's exactly. Created, you know, exactly. I mean, Metallica basically, if you think about it, they one of the first bands that really made made angry heavy metal you know yeah. it's not death metal it's like angry it's just like the 
the, especially when they got those EMG pickups, you know, but it's just like, there's just a sound, you know, it just sounded a little more angry and a little more yeah. screaming with James's voice. I mean, it was, it was just a, a, a different, a, a next, you know, what did Lars say? A next level you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. dynamic. And, you know, yeah. it wasn't Black Sabbath. It wasn't Judas Priest. It was just, it was, it was heavier. Feel, you know what I, I mean? Yeah. I feel like in a lot of ways, they were sort of the first underground extreme metal band when they first broke. Yeah. You know, like it was just faster, heavier, more extreme. Obviously it turned into way above ground, not <laughs> anywhere near yeah. the underground, but I, I think that just speaks more volumes of well, who they are, you know. Really, but I could dissect their music a lot in the sense where I, you know, as, as James was saying, we were the two heads, the Motorhead and the Diamond Head. But yeah. I would add to I would add to that recipe. I would th- definitely throw in Holocaust because there's some early rhythms on Holocaust that I, I know they have adopted, you know. And and there's some other mm. bands that were you know infused, but the, it was definitely new wave of British heavy metal band, you know, and even the the dirtiness and venom and stuff. So there's a lot of influences working in there, but yeah. uh, it, most of it was new wave stuff. And the new wave was was all these different ingredients and elements, and, and Metallica just put it together and packaged it perfectly, uh, right. and and, and, ma- and made a, a certain style out of it. Not Anthrax, not Exodus, not you know the other yeah. bands that were around at the time. It was Metallica, because and I have to say again. Uh, Lars known known his shit when it came to the new wave. I mean, he knew yeah. the new wave, and and influencing James. And again, he listened listened to early Holocaust and some other stuff. You know, I, I have to go back and revisit it. Obviously, the Diamond Head just because they covered those songs, right? And some yeah. of the riffing, but but there's there's other bands mixed in there definitely. That it's all new wave stuff. So, oh well, it's it would be fun to do a do a session someday and. And, and really dissect the, the their early music, whether they know it or not. There's other stuff in there. Oh yeah. Oh, Trespass. Mean... Trespass is another band. You know, it's another band. Parallax. You know, there's other bands, off the wall bands. Yeah. But, uh, I, I well, I love when um, you, like listening to when Lars did his uh, Apple Radio show, and I've heard him on a couple of it. Uh, a couple podcasts here or there and talking about like the new wave of British heavy metal. And he, and he still sometimes pulls out like these obscure bands that I've never heard of in a million years. Like, you know, this is, you know, within the last five, 10 years, I've heard him on things. I'm like, he's still pulling out these obscure bands. He's like, Oh yeah, they had, you know, one album in Germany. Right. And <laughs> I'm just like, oh, right. like, 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 these bands? You know, like, like, like Jameson Raid or something or something. Yeah. yeah. You know, or, or, or hollow ground. They had three songs. Yeah. The EP, yeah. 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 That's all the shit that we that we were we were slogging around with. I mean, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah. All, oh, what a what a period of music for heavy music. Oh my god, it just yeah. came out of that punk scene, and my god, it was just what a, a seventy nine to eighty seventy eight late seventy eight to eighty one, and then it ran out of gas. But man, what just inspired most of those bands never did anything, but man, they had some real well again. They influenced Metallica, that's for sure, and look yeah. what they left us with, right? Yeah, for sure. More, more so, more than anybody knows. Yeah, I mean the, the the legacy lives on through them and other bands too from the scene and all that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still, and that's still, you know, only people really in the weeds know about any of that or care right. about it. But really, you know, or, or that you know, it's one of those. Not talked about at the dinner table very often. The, the new wave of British heavy metal, you know, <laughs> coined by Jeff Barton in, in 
May of <laughs> seven, or 79 or April or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, you know, it's just playing off new wave music. So, you know, it's, yeah. I just, again, I just feel so lucky that I was there at the beginning. I, I yeah. grabbed onto it and then I was able to, you know, uh, help out a friend or two and then and, and just be part of them and, and watch it happen. It's like, God, you know. I, I almost lived next door to the Brady Bunch house and skateboarded in Gilligan's Lagoon and now I'm you know, hanging out with these guys called Metallica. You know? <laughs> it's a, a, a weird life. I think I'm going to you know, try to write a book someday about the disparity of my, my life. My God. Okay. Marshall, you want to check out this band called Metallica with me? <laughs> like, awesome. Oh, well. All um, right. Well, like I said, all this has been really great. I, I thank you. You're, I thank you so much for coming on, and uh, I would. I mean, you're welcome anytime. Please keep in touch, and uh, love to have sure. you on anytime you want to talk more about Metallica or metal in general or the early, you know, the scene in those days or whatever. I'd love to have you back anytime. A big thank you to John Cornerans for coming on Metallicast and for sharing so many unbelievable first-hand stories about the early years of Metallica. I mean, thank God he had the $50 in his wallet on that day. Without that $50, who knows where Metallica ends up if we even hear about them. I mean, there is a good chance that without John Cornerans, this podcast is not a thing because there might be no Metallica to even talk about. I know when I was talking to John, I was nerding out the entire time. And I'm sure all of you in the Metallica Asmodisha were also doing the same. Because I know we are all Metallica nerds here. I just think it's really important to talk to people like him who were there to experience things firsthand that a lot of us were not there for. In doing so, it helps clear up some confusion or helps tell us the truth about stories that might have been exaggerated or have changed or evolved over the years for one reason or another. Like, how cool was it to hear the real story of how James and Lars first heard and met Cliff Burden? So, I mean, my mind was spinning with all the stories that were being told. If you like what you heard, please make sure that you download the episode. Please make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. And if you'd be so kind, please leave a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. All these things go a long way to helping the podcast grow which allows me to have other great guests like John Cronarens on in the future. And hopefully he'll be back on the future for part two. You can also follow Metallicast on social media at Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please feel free to email me, Metallicast at fansonexperts.com. Fans.experts, of course, our home site. And you can find Metallicast everywhere you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify, and for the first time, Amazon Music. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, middle up your ass. Yeah! Fans not experts.